Listener questions leading the way. Dr. Kuntz, in episode number 140, as you were contrasting being a student of history with being a chronologist, you started giving an example about knowing which units. Before you could finish, I immediately thought, uh, Antietam. Of course, yeah, me too. I was right there with him, for sure. Um, this, of course, turned out to be correct. Uh, my tongue-in-cheek question for you is this. Uh, do you think this was pattern recognition on my part as a student of history? Interesting. Uh, insofar as I understand your predictions as presented in BHOP? Or was this proof of the primacy of your example, given that I have been a map and battle-loving Civil War buff from an early age? To frame the question differently for Rev Fisk, thank you, I appreciate this. I thought I thought I was in Greek for a moment, but then I thought maybe I understood. Uh, to reframe it for me, he asks, uh, is Dr. Kuntz a construct of the AI? Yeah, I think so. Um, a fake voice so far? <laughs> Duh. Yeah, 100%. Easy. Duh. That's easy. I built him. We're taking over, don't you know? <laughs> a, a fake voice so powerful as to be able to direct my thoughts towards a small creek in Maryland or able to accurately predict my thoughts in microseconds. Or did the aliens plant the book Heroes in the Blue and Gray on my bookshelf, thus influencing not only my childhood passion, but also my lifelong interest and thought patterns? I'm wondering which, uh, which satirist you grew up with is, is what I'm wondering. Uh, I do have an earnest comment or two, if I may. I was happy to hear Refis denounce cynicism among the clergy, as it has been my sincere prayer that he himself be delivered from what I perceive is a strong temptation to fall into cynicism, uh, which can lead to contempt and despair. Amen. Hallelujah. I repent and I'll repent every day the rest of my life. You keep praying for me if you would. Thank you, sir. Uh, I was equally pleased to hear Dr. Kuntz denounce hatred for America. Abram surely recognized the evil of Sodom, but he fought to save its people from captivity before begging the Lord stay his destructive hand in the last hour. So, too, can we reject the culture or the regime without hating the people or the nation. America has, in many ways, been both the result and the agent of God's merciful hand, and she will rise and fall like all kingdoms, according to what he allows. I often pray, not that the destruction of America be stayed, but that the impending sword, famine, plague lead to the type of suffering that causes repentance and renewal. Hear, hear, uh, preach it, brother. Uh, he goes on. Riches lead away from salvation, often, I'll, I'll add that often there, and we are the richest people in history. Lastly, I disagree with the notion that the use of nuclear weapons in World War II was barbaric. Oh, fun. Left turn. Any personal opinions or motivations of those who developed or deployed the technology notwithstanding, the use of atomic bombs unquestionably saved lives. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but Dr. Kuntz speaks about war in a way that makes me think he has no relatives who have experienced it. I love this. This is such a great letter. Uh, review the details of Saipan and Okinawa, and you'll understand that those children were doomed either way. Um, uh, is it? It's not Armageddon in the East. I'm going to lose it. Tsunami in the East. Uh, Dan Carlin, uh, the Japanese uh, front of the war. It is a terror. It is a horror. I don't even want to know um, going on with the letter. Uh, that 
is a sad and horrible reminder of the consequences of sin, but it's a result of the pagan Japanese culture that placed no value on life. Uh, yes, I'd agree, sir. Uh, he goes on, years ago, I met the bomber from the crew of Boxcar, and I can assure you that he carried a lifelong sadness about the loss of life they inflicted, while knowing full well they saved countless other lives as a result. Uh, thank you for your enjoyable podcast and blessings on your message. And, and now I'll add just in the end for clarity from Jonathan. Uh, I agree again with the horrors of Japan. I'll let Dr. Koons defend uh, his position on nuclear bombs as I am uh, at this point uh, learning from him. So Dr. Koons to you. The issue with nuclear weapons is not the specific instance that I will continue maintaining is barbaric, which doesn't mean that Japanese behavior in the Far East, beginning in the middle of the 1930s, wasn't also barbaric, or that your calculus is somehow wrong, even if both sides are engaging in barbaric behavior. The issue is instead the coarsening of what happens in years after the use of that weapon or the use of that tactic. So to give you another example, some of the things that are denounced in Sherman's March to the Sea during the Civil War, so the listener will know this, the, the question asker will know this himself very well, have previews, particularly in the Western theater of our Civil War. And what that readies certain units to do and certain commanders to do is to engage in the slaughter of civilian populations, in which they engaged also in the bombardment of Vicksburg, Mississippi. So my my issue here is not your calculus where I think you're right and where I, I don't think that there's some kind of clear cut, you know, immediately present, wonderfully somehow kind and merciful choice. You might have two different barbaric choices, which aligns with what you describe as the the gentleman who was himself a pilot, or at least was a crew member, his experience in World War II. So this gets phrased in somewhat esoteric terms by the guy we were discussing, if I recall correctly, when we talked about this Charles Wing Wexkull, whoever that actually is. But what he's trying to say is that we open ourselves up to certain kinds of wildly destructive behavior by doing that. That's my point. I don't disagree with your calculus. I'm not even sure that concretely I disagree with the specific military decision to do it. I'm saying we and we opened ourselves up to a certain kind of barbarism that was unprecedented in our own terms, but we did that in Europe too without the use of nuclear weapons. So it's not even particularly nuclear weapons per se as a technology that is my primary concern. It is the wholesale destruction of civilian populations. Hmm. Which which is which is not actually a commonplace of Christian thinking yeah. on how to prosecute a war historically ever. That's the issue. Right, right. And then that makes sense to me. Um I really want to chase rabbits in terms of nuclear physics and demons, but um the simplicity of your position, though, is that wholesale destruction of a, a base population who normally does not want to be in the war unless festered up to this by some form of propaganda is to to shoot the bystanders um, and to put the argument then, I think, into a explicit 
uh, reference to the World War II situation would have been to recognize you're right. To, to finally defeat Japan, you would have had to lose all these lives conquering or, yeah. or super peace and stop. Because they they, that's what they wanted, actually. They, right. they, they wanted right. to stop where they were and hold. And so, you know, what are you trying to achieve? We're trying to go save these other people that Japan conquered. Why? Who told you to do that? And then something you pointed out, Dr. Kuntz, uh, in, when we talked about this more in depth, that really just blew me away. And, and then why did you bomb the Christians? Like, really? I mean, you had the whole country, right? right. And, you, and you went for the Christian cities? That, that reeks. It reeks. And history is filled with this, this zeitgeist. Um, much more question to go on with, uh, as you will. I think that something to consider here is something that we'll handle in the, in the next question too, which is the which is the nature of Christian thought relative to anything going on at the time. And i i want to I want to be very clear about this, basically because I think that if we are engaged in some form of reconquest of our own civilization such as the Spanish had to engage in for half a millennium in order to retake the Iberian Peninsula from Muslims. And in that case, it was geographically clear what was happening, whereas in our case, it's not. If we're engaged in any kind of long-term project, right, beyond like whatever, getting Trump elected a second time, you know, whatever whatever it is, whatever short-term and sorry, yeah, whatever it is, it. right? What, if we have long-term ideas or goals, we have to consider several things that reoccur as patterns. And just in answer to his, his, his first sort of tongue-in-cheek question, there's a difference between having listened to a bunch of episodes of this podcast and pattern recognition on one's own. And, and he knows the difference, and that's why it's tongue-in-cheek. But the listeners also need to know the difference is that the purpose here is not for you to be able to read our minds. It's for you to be spurred to do this recognition on your own concretely in your own life, in your own thinking, in your own writing, in your own work. What we're dealing with in the case of Christian restraint upon the bar the essential barbarism of war is something that is extremely difficult because human beings barely understand themselves, let alone each other. So just in answer to one of the listeners or the questioner's suppositions, specifically, he's wrong about my relatives and the experience of war. And it's difficult to know other people. And it's difficult to understand the things that you yourself have done. The Christian restraint on war, all of the thinking that went into what was behavior that either side of the 30 years war was expected. Therefore, the barbarism of the 30 years war once unleashed upon Central Europe, particularly Lutheran and Catholic lands in that case, was so shocking precisely because we're not trying to fix everything about ourselves. We're trying to restrain what is worse than ourselves. And that when restraints disappear under various conditions, we are now sliding. And if people actually read the Jonathan Edwards sermon about their foot shall slide in due time, sinners in the hands of an angry God, people just make fun of it. Nobody actually reads it. He lays out there some of this calculus that then in uh, current cultural questions gets called the slippery slope fallacy, but then always turns out to be right, which is... Once you start sliding along a certain path, stopping is the hardest thing. So if you, by this or that action today, open yourself up to something else, and I think people know this from battling with temptation in their own life, right? Let alone speak on a civilizational level. 
if that restraint somehow disappears or is not enforced or whatever, the slide is extremely easy, right? So we've said this before is that virtue is difficult to attain and vice is extremely easy to accomplish. You can, you can't find the depths. So when we're thinking about what, what any kind of restraint would be for, right? Whether it's conventional weapons, nuclear weapons, whatever it is, the purpose of the restraint is some restraint publicly enforced, morally sanctioned, what, however these things actually play out and get discussed and then, you know, how punishment occurs, whatever it may be. The point of those is so that some of the barbarism may be stayed. That's the point. And when that doesn't happen, a slide into utter barbarism. And we don't, we don't just mean by barbarism, certain kinds of brutality in warfare, the the insight here, and we talked about this with World War One. The insight here is the brutalization of all of the other realms of life because of the brutality of certain kinds of warfare, and that was actually recognized even after our civil war. That's just totally forgotten. But if we talk about the history of homelessness, sometime we're going to have to talk about the civil war because the first example of sort of men who have no attachment anywhere and seem to appear in numbers in our cities is after our civil war. So what we're talking about here is the choice between barbarism and civilization and that civilization involves the enforcement of restraints. That's all. So I don't actually disagree with the questioner on, you know, the sheer battle calculus of the use of nuclear weapons against the Japanese. I, I disagree that we can do these things without severe harm to our souls. That's all. So I think there must be an unthinkable thing. We all know it's unthinkable. It's a shared unthinkable. It's a taboo, right? Or else you got to expect the unthinkable is what's going to be done. If, if there's not a rule against right. it. Yeah. That's then right. it's going to happen because of man's hunger, really. Um, when when you're wrestling and practicing, um, you can you can get pretty good. And then when you quote unquote go live, it's a different game, right? Uh, the man's hunger for victory changes him. You you do do anything in practice and then do it in a competition. It's it's a different game. Yeah. Uh, right. And so uh, same thing applies here when when the beast is unleashed. Uh, great evil is, is is sent upon us, and that's where, again, for my part, as much as I, I I think I'd love to have some real particle physicist interview me, just so we could find out if I'm I'm loony or if I have a shot in the dark at what I think about subatomic things. But what I think about subatomic things um, is it's the same kind of argument that that you're you're making is like once you decide, oh, the unseen, that's for me to peer into. Uh, and you and you break your way in with brute force, which is sort of our current approach. Um, I'm just not sure it's good for anything, really, in the long run. As much as I'm all kind of for nuclear energy as a renewable re- energy right now, like rather than wind and solar, <laughs> right? So, so don't hear me saying you know never and forever. But again, there's there is a there's a step man takes as a society, and we took it. Uh, and and the the blowback is yet to really be felt. I, I think is where you know you and I are both both preaching this. Um, do you want to say more about yeah. pattern recognition? I thought that was really interesting. Uh, that well, part of it. Yeah, I think the, the the pattern recognition thing 
is so that you can see something. So for example, that yes, we deploy nuclear weapons in the second world war. We also continue researching and then experimenting on our own soldiers, chemical and biological weapons, things actually formally banned long before the partial nuclear test ban treaty or anything like that. We are continuing to carry out, particularly at Edgewood Arsenal near Aberdeen, Maryland, experiments on our own soldiers, quote unquote, volunteer, who volunteer, so to speak, for these things. You get it, What you're getting as a matter of pattern recognition is the idea that the government, far from governing per se, or in a very old-fashioned phrase, keeping the peace, is instead engaged in some progressive discovery of it knows not what, but which is meant to lead to progressively greater capacities, right? So part of the, re- part of the research on chemical and biological warfare that was carried out, and probably still isn't, some other form, just, you know, these are things that we now know about, the Deseret Test Center and so on. The purpose of them was so that they wouldn't have to deploy nuclear weapons against cities again, because they could, through the deployment of chemical and biological warfare, paralyze a city. So what you're looking at is that they're coming up, they're trying to come up with solutions to the problems that they themselves have created through previous decisions. But that part of this nature of this slide is that your your solutions resolve previous problems and create still worse problems. So now you're inflicting suffering on your own soldiers some of whom during this time period between the 50s and roughly the mid-70s have been drafted into the military, although they ostensibly volunteered for this program, whatever that means in particular for each guy. We're talking about maybe 7,500 guys over the course of 25 years. So I think that when you're talking about pattern recognition, and we kind of said this before, is that what you want to do is do comparative work. So see, did the did the British do things like this? Did the Soviets do things like this? Was, I want to say it was unit 9999 in the Japanese or in the Imperial Japanese Army. Did they do things like this? You want to kind of zoom out and do things comparatively because that helps you see a little bit more clearly what is happening. Because of course, if you only know your own history or your own government's history, your own nation's history, patterns are going to be a lot harder to find because they're going to appear to be one-offs and they're going to come in your native language with a lot of connotations. And to be honest, a lot of that is distracting. It's sort of like people with attention deficit disorder. Like there are too many things going on and you have to give yourself time to recognize the patterns. That's also why I would just recommend that people spend the vast majority of their information intake getting things from print because it allows your mind to engage in far greater pattern recognition than when you are scrolling, essentially, and jumping around. Hyperlinks get you down somewhere, which is how people talk about the informational direction. They went down a rabbit hole or or down a rabbit trail, but it doesn't give you a broad view that, you know, looking at it from from higher up would enable you to see the whole, you know, the whole field of play at the same time. Queen of Hearts is down there, man. Just just chase deep enough. It gets crazy. It gets yeah, crazy. There's right. a Mad Hatter and more. And and I really mean it. 
Um, yes, yeah, that's, that's a wonderful insight there into the structure of information itself and, and how the way your medium operates is, in fact, important to how you think. And Marshall McLuhan was just kind of scratching on the surface of that uh, in a world that doesn't believe in the unseen, right? Uh, the spiritual. Right. So, ah, good stuff there. I think I think we can just go ahead and be distracted, though, because you're talking about distraction, uh, as you mentioned it. No need for me to opine more when we have more news, more, more news, uh, more mail. Dear Pastor Fisk and Dr. Kuntz, if you haven't done so already, uh, I, for the record, I haven't. I've avoided it <laughs> like for all good reasons. Uh, could you give your thoughts on the recently LCMS excommunicated Corey Mahler, who, along with his followers and fellow Lutheran fascists, continue to have influence, at least online, over a number of Lutheran fascists, Christian nationalists, and listeners of the Stone Choir podcast. Uh, which, for the record, I only learned about the Stone Choir, I think, two days ago. So I think that's after he was excommunicated. So it's fun how the, the blob gets the knowledge out. You know, it's, it's weird. Anyway, I have tried, he goes on, I have tried to converse with Mahler and others like him online and have been disturbed at the grimness of their view of the world and of the Lutheran Church, LCMS in particular. I'm also disturbed at how natural and reasonable many of their assertions are, especially regarding the distinction of the sexes and the place of masculinity and fathers in society. They, like I know Pastor Fisk has been for many years, are very keen on first article matters. But I'm concerned that while they're unapologetic apologetically Nazi ideology might be condemned by officials in the LCMS, I fear these Lutheran fascists may be offering something to disillusioned single young conservative Christian men, which has otherwise been deprived of them by their country, their fathers, or by their church. Can I, can I cut, cut how right in? Like if you're actually going to go that route, you're leaving the LCMS. I really, they're already organized other places to try to do this in the LCMS. is like its own kind of fourth level, whatever game. And maybe that's what Dr. Kuhn's say. But like, I just really, I think it's insane to believe that the real threat to the LCMS right now is neo-Nazism. If there's three of them or 10 or something like, we, okay, ignore, like ignore, ignore. It's really easy. Um, the, the worst thing we do is feed the fire. He goes on. I especially have sympathy for them being a fairly young 28 single and somewhat uh, disillusioned conservative Lutheran uh, man myself. But for myself, I feel I've been talked off the proverbial ledge by people like Pastor Fisk, Pastor Wolfmuller, Pastor Wilkin, and now Dr. Kuntz by their honest and open discussion of hard things which young Lutheran men need and want to hear talked about. Thank you for that and keep doing it. Thank you for your consideration. And he gives his his, uh, his info there um, at the end. Uh, Dr. Kuntz, uh, please lead us. I think it's probably best to start in the response by saying two things. One is that the concern that the questioner has is really the salient point for anybody. And the first of which is that I have long deplored the LCMS habit of potentially based on coverage, having to have a very intense opinion about what everyone else is doing. I know a little bit, I guess, about the excommunication of Mr. Mahler, but I don't know anything that anyone else doesn't know or couldn't find out. And I think that to play into where I started with the the question of the future, okay, concerned about the future, especially young men, 
you're dealing with a situation where you're getting highly selective enforcement. So if you're an LCMS pastor, okay, and you're listening to this, you know, you personally know plenty of situations where the person is openly engaged in all kinds of stuff. I'm not just talking about, you know, the saltwater districts or is on the clergy roster and has engaged in things that uh, you just get a time out for and nothing happened. Certainly nothing in public, certainly nothing anybody tweeted about. And when you're talking about the future, you're dealing with a situation where you need coherence and unity more than ever because you have a situation of intense hostility from the world, right? And that's some of what is driving young men to all kinds of options that their forefathers never considered, okay? So we can talk about fascism specifically if you want to um, in an American context or national socialism. Those are actually different things. I mean, they're related, obviously, but they are different things. I don't know what Mr. Mueller, if he equates them or, or distinguishes them or anything. I mean, I don't, I don't know it that well, right? But intellectually and historically, they're different things. But there are also lots of other things that keep coming up seemingly from the internet, but also off the internet into real life, like monarchism. So we can talk about those things if you want to. I think that if you're going to attain coherence and unity, the place to start is through handling things without vituperation. So I'm not talking here about anyone specifically online because I'm, I'm being totally honest. I don't participate. Now that's on purpose. Okay. So other people can participate if they want to, but I don't. And the reason that I don't is because I don't see it as actually productive for the future for everyone to be online all of the time. It could be fine for some people if that's working and it's working well, then that's great, right? And what I mean by working well is it's actually serving Christ, okay? But it doesn't work well for me. And it, I don't think it works well for most people because most of us are not built to cultivate a variety of virtues that are actually necessary, particularly for cooperation with other human beings, let alone fellow Christians, and also be online all the time. So young men are impatient anyway. They're online all the time. That's making them more impatient. So, you know, I don't know anything about algorithms. So I don't know what's actually being promoted by how various apps are constructed. But the reason that they are drawn to strong opinions is because they help you be clear and provide clear answers about what's going on. That isn't really a judgment about any of the opinions, because when we got this question, I went to Mr. Mahler's Twitter. He's, of course, got strong opinions about lots of things. So do the people who are completely against him. So if you're a young man, either side will work for you rhetorically in that way, right? Now, you're probably going to have more against him than for him, at least, certainly to begin with because he's promoting things that are socially disapproved of, right? And also ecclesiastically disapproved of in this specific case for that congregation. How do we go forward? I don't think that we go forward by reacting to every assertion with terror and anger. 
because we don't do that with lots of other things. And maybe, <laughs> maybe it's productive and maybe it's not. But I think maybe the first place to start talking about the future is we can't really do selective enforcement in the future. We're either going to be coherent or we're not. That's a whole separate question from whether, you know, an excommunication gets handled by the congregation. So I just, you know, hypothetically, I have a member that supports, let's say, <laughs> let's say for the sake of confusing everybody, Jonathan, let's say he supports Italian fascism there specifically. You there you go. Specifically. Okay. Mussolini's because, own cousin. Right. Because... Okay, let's and let's say he's not of Italian ancestry, okay, so it's not a, it's not a racial thing. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Let's say right. Okay, <laughs> because because the thing one one difference here is going to be in functionally how the fascist regime handled its own internal Jewish population versus the National Socialist regime in Germany and then in the larger German Reich once they conquered Sudetenland and Austria. Okay, why does that matter? Because do you notice how complexity has already entered into the question? So let me give you an example here that I actually know of. This is a, this is a guy on the LCMS clergy roster. Okay, I won't tell you what color his skin is. I once asked him about a fairly obscure conflict that occurred in East Africa. He begins to spout what is undoubtedly. I mean, this is in real life, right? So this is not on Twitter, so it doesn't get saved forever. He begins to tell me about the absolute horrors of this ethnic group in Ethiopia. They happen to be the most numerous ethnic group in Ethiopia. And how horrible they all are. And how they simply need to be wiped from the face of the earth. Okay? I don't really understand the stakes of what he's saying. I don't know why he's saying it exactly. It, it, I do some research. I find out that his ethnic group hates these people and it's mutual. And this is a saga for the last 400 years in Ethiopia. Okay. So now, now you have some guess as to, you know, the, the color of his skin, but I didn't like report him for something. I mean, is he guilty of racism or partiality? And so this is the issue here is that what you have is you, we're currently mirroring the selective enforcement that you get in the world too, where race both exists and doesn't, and racism exists and doesn't. And it really depends on the race of the person who's either speaking or being spoken of. So the issue here is that we're getting extremely selective enforcement, but even more than that, okay, so let's say that you don't want to kick somebody off the clergy roster because of his opinions about the nature of you know, the the Derg regime in Ethiopia, you can go look that one up for some complexity. So we're not going to kick him off the clergy roster for that. We're also not going to kick him off the clergy roster for having more than one wife during his time on the clergy roster. So I think that the most essential element, especially when you're dealing with the young, is forthrightness. I am can forthrightly say, and the young have been disappointed in me in real life, although they're reticent to say it, that I am not a national socialist. <laughs> I am, I think, disappointingly too American for them. That's fine. <laughs> I, it doesn't worry me. But I, I'm not handling their objections and their questions with vituperation for this reason, not because I don't disagree with them, but 
Because one, when you handle somebody in real life, you have to deal with them differently. You, you just have to. And that's why also, if you wanted to build something, you could start online, you could use online, but you can't stay online. So eventually it has to go into real life and it has to apply in real life. Number two, if I'm not going to handle this guy with vituperation, who has an objection to me or is genocidal toward the Amhara or whatever, I mean, actually wants to destroy them as a people, genocide, right? The destruction of a genos. Then I'm just going to listen and I'm going to find out where, where is this coming from. Now, in that specific case, I did think it really applied to his conduct as a, as a minister, particularly. He wasn't ministering to the Amhara, I guess. As far as I know, he was only ministering to other Oromo. But, you know, that's, he had other doctrinal issues. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, plenty, fun. plenty, actually. Fun. Right, right. But, but, but the issue there was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, oh, you said a bad thing. I'm going to destroy you now. I'm going to destroy your life. Isn't that an interesting <laughs> thing? Isn't that an interesting thing? Um, golly, I want to dig on it. But you, you have more to yeah, say. Yeah, no, go Please. ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it just, it, it blows my mind the things we have tolerated in the Missouri Synod for decades, uh, decades, generations. Uh, and in the meantime, the things that we do manage to spend a lot of money and time fighting about. Uh, and then the way we also managed to do it, like in the most secondhand embarrassment before everybody else in the world kind of way, so that when everyone else points at us and said, look how weird they are, yeah. we're kind of like caught doing something weird and we don't even know we're in the picture, right? And and and, and <laughs> so, as, as yeah, someone so, who's born into this, escaped, and then got pulled back in because of the Book of Concord and still wants to be here, it's, it's a... It's a <laughs> It's it's a up and down kind of ride. I'll just say it that way. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, I. And when I and when I say selective enforcement, here's what I mean specifically: is that whatever action is taken by whichever congregation, district, synod, okay, selective enforcement means on a very basic level. This is my major concern: that God's people don't know what is right and wrong. Okay because the life is always more powerful than the words. So whatever actually happens matters more than what is said. Hmm. Okay. So what, what actually happens, let's say is this guy, you know, his wife, his wife divorces him. It is, you know, we can sit and we can debate what husband of one wife means in the pastoral epistles. So let me bring up something that's far more prevalent as far as I know than having debates with national socialists, okay? Which I'm happy to do. That's totally fine. Far more prevalent is that the Bible indicates a distinct standard for the clergy that he be a husband of one wife. And that's not that's not connected just to holding only one marriage certificate at any given time. That's connected to the management of one's household which is a test for fitness to manage the household of God, because scripturally he's an overseer. That's the literal meaning of bishop. And he has to look over the whole group. So if his own stuff at home is not 
good to go, then he needs to attend to that. And he doesn't need to be an overseer. He doesn't need to be. So if this is a concrete issue in people's lives and in congregations' lives, what matters here is what happens if the guy, you know, and, and his wife leaves him. And maybe you could say, well, he's the innocent party. He's free to remarry. I still don't think he should be an overseer. Okay. Because he doesn't need to be. It's we're, none of us is entitled to oversight. And the and oversight involves teaching the word of God. And when our lives are clean, contradicted by teaching the word of God, we have a big problem. And I know this makes people uncomfortable because I've said it and I've watched them squirm. And I don't do it to make people squirm. I'm saying it because I I don't see <laughs> I don't see another way to understand that verse. Because of that, the action that that has not really been taken hardly at all on this issue is that the man leaves the office so that he can pursue another way of supporting himself and his family while he either tries to reconcile, put his family back together or whatever happens, right? That happens everywhere. That's an issue almost everywhere. I, I mean, certainly you couldn't go to a single district out of the 35 in the United States and not find that issue in at least one congregation, I'm sure. So, if that's a if that's a clear and present problem where I have a clear scripture, then what if I have the frustrations of various young men over things like, you know, the fact that they're white males, so they're going to be put in, you know, this box and not get this other thing that someone else gets because he is brown or black or whatever he has the great fortune in life to be, right? And if we don't talk about those things, I mean, and talk about them. So to begin to answer the, the questioner's question, because this is a, it's kind of a huge question because it's a question about the future. How are we going to handle each other? What are we going to do? Are we going to seek coherence and unity? If we don't handle that, a young man's frustrations and difficulties and answer them in a pastoral way, we don't really have a, we don't really have a just claim on his attention. I also would submit, and we said this a couple episodes back, for the same reason, I don't like the generational thinking like, oh, those are boomers, those are whatever, because it's dismissive of people. Are Is everyone guilty of, of lots of things? Yes, of course. But I, 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 I just, I don't, I do not hate God's people, however old they are, whatever their frustrations are. If they're older, they did not face the same kind of usually, although this is actually depends on where you were, if you were a boomer, but usually boomers did not, the boomer generation did not face the same kind of anti-white things in school or in work or in job applications that guys in their 20s now face. And, and it's especially guys because women are can still sort of be a protected class under certain circumstances, right? They 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 go somewhere in the diversity stack that that white males can't so they're so the, the men's frustration is always going to be higher under a regime where their race is both guilty but also like historically and contemporarily it's detrimental to their advancement their career their their flourishing so all of those things have to be dealt with if I go to Corey Mahler's Twitter or his co-host Twitter or whatever, and I see them discussing those things and I'm 19, then, you know, I don't have some kind of like 
complex set of thoughts about how Italian fascism is better than German national socialism or something. I'm like, oh, these guys are talking about stuff, right? So um, I, for that reason, I, I'm really, there's something I disagree with in the questioner. And that is this language of like concern. Like if you have a, a concern and I, th this, it sounds to me like the same kind of churchy vocabulary as like, we need volunteers if you have a concern, either bring it up or don't like with the person, if they don't engage you, then that's on them. So it sounds like the the listener brought this up to Mr. Mahler, got, you know, rebuked or I, I don't know, whatever. Right. Well, then that's that's on him. Right. <laughs> if someone doesn't actually want to talk to you, that's on him. And if somebody wants to be troublesome and and just stir the pot just to stir the pot, then that's on him. But if somebody is stirring the pot by bringing up questions that need to be discussed, maybe not resolved with all of his resolutions or whatever, I don't know, but is bringing up something people need to talk about or that is actually happening, then that's not his fault <laughs> that it's actually happening, right? So I think the, the most basic thing here for the future is that we make ourselves a haven for people to talk about things and to think thoughts and then to work through those thoughts in connection with scripture that doesn't exist in many places. I don't want to meet, and I haven't personally in my own life met those people with vituperation. I don't, I don't agree. I mean, the first time, the first time I heard of Corey Mahler, a guy approaches me and says, you know, my son is reading Corey Mahler on Twitter. Okay. I don't know who that is. And he says women are property. Okay. <laughs> so then, you know, so I don't agree with Corey Mahler on his understanding of the 10th commandment. I mean, okay. You know, like I don't, I don't want any points for that, <laughs> but I think that's why he said that. I don't agree with it. Or maybe he didn't quite mean they're like literal property, like my phone is my property and I can throw it in the trash if I want to. You know, like I don't know, but I, I just, the way of handling problems of reactivity rather than discussion, and this could just be a problem with the internet too, right? But of reactivity rather than discussion and then of looking through scripture to find out what is true and what is false and then leaving other things as realms of disagreement we don't have a future if we're going to be reactive because we're not driving the train. <laughs> it's fine to be reactive if you're actually in control, right? Because the general direction of things is controlled by you. But if you're not in control, and we recognize that in so many realms of our life, certainly as, you know, the body of Christ, we are not in control currently of, you know, whatever, uh, America, for example, then being reactive just means that you are jumping when and where they want you to jump rather than choosing whether you want to jump at all, right? So I don't want to be reactive. And if the listener brings us up and gets a, you know, doesn't get a discussion or something, then that's on the guy that isn't willing to have a discussion with him. And the listener doesn't need to be like worried, okay? Because this is, to me, this is the short-term thinking that is induced by the internet, whatever your opinions about anything are, is that you think that everything that is right in front of your eyes is everything that is real. And Amen. 
that because, and I, here's, let me just give you an example of that, that, that nobody saw coming. Okay. You will increasingly find if you go into, you know, many LCMS churches, you will find women covering their heads. Okay. Ain't that a thing. That, yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's like a new thing, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of. An, it's an old thing and it's a new thing, right? Yep. But where did, where did that come from? It, it, it didn't come because anybody like, you know, wrote an amazing essay about women covering their heads. It didn't, it, it, it came about from a combination of several factors, most of which have nothing to do with the church's explicit teaching or preaching on the issue of what the first half of first Corinthians 11 means. It, no, <laughs> no one was preaching those sermons. It wasn't in the three-year lectionary. Nobody was talking about it. It's probably not even the one year, right? Nobody was talking about that. People want the sexes to be more distinguished. People are sick of gender confusion. People are sick of women signaling by the way that they dress that they don't respect their husbands. So now they're going in a direction that they're going without anyone's say so. And I don't think it's, I mean, it's like not bad. It's fine. It's good. Good. Let's go for it. Whatever. Right. But here I think is the basic issue. And this is, this is where I fear for the Lutherans generally. Okay. Is that we seem unable as a group. And this is why I don't like the habit of everyone having to have an opinion on what everyone else is doing, according to selective media attention. We seem to have a habit of demanding that people either explicitly agree with what we're saying right now and do exactly what we do right now, or nothing else can happen. And we simply will not survive if we are like that because all that that has the effect of doing is creating progressively smaller splinters. And that's going to happen regardless of what your opinions are, because you will find that you do not 100% agree on everything with everyone else. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this as a matter of like speculation or because I don't like debate. I'm saying it as a matter of historical reality. Go look at the life of P.E. Kretzman, the life of J.P. Kaler. These are men who are at the center of influence for a long time in American Lutheran history and slide into progressively smaller and smaller and smaller groups because nobody always agrees with everybody else. So if you have an attitude of, you will agree with what I'm saying right now, or you're totally wrong and we need to split, then that's how this is going to end. You don't need to save every single, you know, institutional prerogative and fact. But if you're going to approach Christianity as a matter of your opinions prevailing in all things, we don't have a future as a group. And some group that doesn't set individual opinion nearly so highly as the internet sets it up, and sometimes our polity sets it up, will survive much better because it subordinates the individual's right to do and say whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to the group's right to continue existing in relative peace. I try to do that personally. I don't say everything I think about everything that I think about not even because I think I'm wrong, but because number one, a lot of times it doesn't matter. And number two, it would be better for the group if like on 
the Discord channel for this show, they could just discuss things and just it just it's obvious you don't all agree with each other about a lot of things. It's fine. But that the group could then continue seeking in real life actual movement in the right direction on all kinds of various fronts that no one person can know or control or have the right opinion about. That's the overall goal here. Okay. And if that's happening, then you don't need my opinion or my say-so or, or Pastor Fist's opinion or say-so about everything. And I don't need yours. <laughs> but if we don't have that attitude, or if we are unwilling to talk, or if we demand immediate explicit assent on everything that anyone ever says, then we don't have a future as a group. So you at Ward Fitley did a nice podcast once on a guy named Herman Otten. And uh, uh, it really, it was, it was a nice uh, kind of tribute to the good he did in his life. Um, in my experience of reading Christian news, you know, from seminary until I probably, I think I quit when they started a YouTube channel and he was reading the newspaper to the camera. And I was like, okay, yeah, I probably can just go on now without following that anymore. Sure. But what I really learned from Hermotin was from the one letter I received from him. It was when I worked at KFUO Radio. And I think it maybe was two or three sentences, very direct, pointed questions, demanded a response um, and uh, implied that if I did not respond, it proved I was guilty of the error for which I was associated with somebody I don't even remember. Yeah. I remember asking my boss about it. I was like, yeah, you know, I, what should I do? And he said, you know, we all learned long ago, if you ignore him, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything more. <laughs> Just don't respond, he yeah. said. And again, I, I think Herman Notton stand in the Seminex battle, the tribute you guys paid to him is good, right? So this is not right. meant to tarnish the man's name. It is meant to recognize that the spirit of fight that existed on both sides of the 1970s battle was not the one we want to use to build with right now. We need something a little more brotherly than what we saw. Whatever caused it, right? Whatever caused it, we got to repent of it now. And I think it goes back to scripture for, for sure. The battle for scripture was necessary and essential. But if you keep the knowledge and have not love, there's even a verse about that, right? Well, I, I think that what I'm what I'm trying to talk about here and and doing orally at is a certain kind of group dysfunction that various groups have different kinds of dysfunctions. Our dysfunction seems to consist in something that I have seen concretely, not just in Seminex time, but in this time. Yeah. On on all so there's a certain like psychological profile almost or psycho spiritual profile that I can easily identify where it's both in, in real life, it is a sort of a, it's a lack of forthrightness or friendliness or like brotherliness. Okay. So you don't get the sense I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of all kinds of people and they, I mean, they have appeared on the promoted election lists of both sides. I mean, and I'm completely sincere about this. But I find it in our people too, and I find it online. There's a sort of like coldness or stiffness or miserableness in real life. Okay. And, or there is the adoption of sort of the persona of, quote, a character in real life. 
And then the emotional life is wildly unstable and it and it's like intense and it's given to outbursts, anger. Mm-hmm. Particularly anger, but 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 also, I mean, it's sort of like naturally manic depressive. This is like a common type. And then when the person is faced with opposition, all opposition is personal. But he cannot, therefore, separate his own personal opposition to someone or somebody or something from his sense of what the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is. And I think that the issue there, just in a basic theological way, is a confusion of a tool for an end. Yeah, well said. And it's it's just a bit, it's like a, I mean, we we functionally make the same mistake that we think Roman Catholics are making about the Roman Catholic Church, which is that the the institution becomes the be-all and end-all, and in its name, we will prosecute any holy war that we need to, and we don't actually know the difference between someone not explicitly agreeing with you in what you've said, or done, or whatever, and right and wrong. There, there can be no difference. So the issue here is that Herman Otten, and we, we did the tribute episode basically because we thought he had been defamed. Hmm. The defamation, and I only appeared in Christian News once in Herman Otten's lifetime, and it was because I wrote a book review of a Rudolf Bultmann biography you can find on the internet, this book review. And I didn't, I think, engage in wrote denunciation. Now, isn't that what I just failed to do also for another person? Yeah, right. Okay. Because I don't find rote denunciation to be anything except an enforcement of group conformity. Okay. And I'm, I'm happy to do group conformity on the creeds and the confessions. I'm happy to do group conformity on actually practicing what the scriptures say about the pastoral office and its qualifications. I don't need to do rote denunciation for some formula that a guy with a platform invented. I just, I just don't, and I'm not going to. So, what the and, and because what it does is it it deadens thought, and it it made Pastor Otten seem silly to people, unfortunately, because he was always requesting rote denunciations of various people for various things. And then they just make a joke out of him, which they shouldn't have done, but that's why it happened. It wasn't only because they disliked him, there was that, right? Or they disagreed with him, there was that. But it was because he was constantly asking for rote denunciations. And his time for his rote denunciations sounding plausible or necessary to people had passed. Mm-hmm. That was the problem, right? Yep. There are there are times, and so right now we we are supposed to have rote denunciations of lots of things, right? The reason that we have become that way is because we have fragmented wildly and are not actually seeking unity on the basis of the Word of God, which, and this is the difficult thing for any church hierarchy to accept or achieve, is that a hierarchy can't do it for you. You have to do it yourself in your own congregation, and this is this is not a piece of uh, naivete. I I actually believe that, and I actually know people are doing it. And some of you are listening right now because I talk to you, and I I think you're you're fantastic, and you're trying, right? 
and your pastor is trying to actually be a pastor to you instead of being vituperative with you. So it's not like these things aren't going on. The world is always far bigger than any of us sees or understands. But the idea that rote denunciation is the way forward, that if we just line up the denunciations the right way, we will have figured out the future, was never true. One of the the geniuses of CFW Walther's initial Synod of Missouri, Ohio, and other states, uh, and also then the General Conference, was his recognition that the wider, you might even call it, you know, parachurch organization, getting together, gathering, making decisions, counseling, that synodish things have been for the church for history uh, is is kind of a threat when it becomes the thing that is in charge of of everything else and and so there was a there was a a, what is the right word Uh, he didn't move quickly in adopting any polity when there was they knew they had to make something up i mean they were really kind of like what do we do now we don't have a bishop you know, they, they had to figure something. And he went back to f- the first sources and you can argue about his speaking of denunciation theology. OK, but like he uh, he set us in a, a position as a body where the last thing you would ever expect would be that a local individual would be excommunicated because of political pressures from newspapers going all the way up to like the top office of synod like that just wasn't really what it was for and you would have assumed it would have got dealt with locally so certainly someone might write a letter to a a, a theologian of influence who holds an office here or there and they might say this is probably how you should handle that but you're not really going to get your talking orders from, say, I don't know, mainstream media's zeitgeist pushing you in a direction to become an authoritarian body on behalf of a state agenda that's psyoping everyone. <laughs> like, like so, that's where yeah. like the move to authoritarian power just strikes me as the essential piece here, regardless of the topic. Right? It's the it's the shift in synodical politics where everybody said use the power. And it, it, we haven't really, I mean, maybe since Seminex, maybe they, they saw it, that, but ah, there's a lot of those guys that sat around and got calls. So this is a thing to me. I think, I think there's a, what, what you're saying is, is true with this caveat that there are some relatively obscure factoids from the past of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that are helpful to remember and then to just explain the way that this works, because I, I I do see in kind of researching, answering this question, guys referencing bylaws and stuff and how this pertains to pastors. And that's, that's entirely possible on a formal level, but I think it's a little bit of a, a misunderstanding of how these things function is that just if for it, for instance, is that if you look up the Cincinnati case and you would look for the history of the synodical conference, for example, which is that general body with Missouri and Wisconsin and and some other synods, is that the Cincinnati case is an example of how these things operate, where they do actually intervene in a local congregation, but they don't do it formally because they can't formally, right? And that had to do with how the local congregation had handled a guy who refused to send his child 
to the parochial school because he wanted his child to learn English. <laughs> so in that case, the Wisconsin Synod said one thing, the Missouri Synod said another, and then the congregation and the man say various things. And this, the reason it's in there is because it's about our debates about church and ministry. The pertinent thing there is that the local congregation is kind of inseparable from the larger body, whether we want to recognize that or not. It's reflective in business terms. It's almost like a franchise, right? That's why people are disappointed. They're like, I thought this was an LCMS congregation, but X is happening or or Y was said. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because you expect some kind of like uniformity. So the issue here is that when you have greater media awareness, particularly than you did in 1898, which is a Cincinnati case, you're also dealing with a situation where you're going to get a reaction. This is why I'm stressing for us to be intentionally non-reactive. Amen. Because what it drives is thinking, and I know that this is happening with various laymen in various parts of the United States. What it drives is a thinking of you're going to get you're going to get you're going to get reversion to some Con conformable norm in a reactive situation, right? When you're in an emergency, you fall back on memory. So in an emergency, especially when someone is upset by something, they're going to revert. This is why it wasn't surprising to me at all. They're going to revert to like, this is, this is evil and horrible. Now we're not getting that same reversion about, you know, genocidal Ethiopians, right? We're, we're not getting that because no one's aware of that. It's not being covered in the media. We're not getting that same reversion on other issues that you could revert on, right? We're not, we're not getting that reversion on, you know, the heinousness of the covenant school shooting, even though we have so many Christian schools ourselves, because there isn't the same societal pressure to conform to a norm. So things don't get discussed in the same way because we're all living reactively, that's that's where I mean I I'm I'm not uh, I'm not despairing about you know the confession of faith, but I I don't see how bodies survive societal opposition when they are living reactively because we're not we're not driving things right survival right? mode yep yeah because you get you get the same the very same situation happens in the third century in North Africa, where you end up with three different churches in North Africa, people know about the Donatists, maybe they know about the Catholics, there are other groups, you get you get different reactions to persecution, and then you get vituperation on all sides, you're not being gracious enough, you're not forgiving sins, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, just go read that whole story of persecution and how it was handled. Just, just read it from the Donatist perspective for a second. And then you understand how difficult these things are. So if I'm if I'm pleading for unity, then what I'm pleading for is simply for us to try to attain something that the North Africans did not attain. Because eventually the Catholics get swept aside in North Africa because the Donatists have way more credibility because they actually stuck by people who were ferociously opposed to pagan persecution. And, but the Donatists themselves get swept aside because they become extremely isolated. So then when Islam comes through North Africa as a conquering force, it's them alone resisting because they're not in conversation or communion with anyone else. So the Donatist church survives for hundreds of years after its first bout with disunity. But then that disunity will then destroy it later because it has nothing to fall back upon. As by contrast, the if you will, the Catholic Church or the Western Church or you know the Latin Church does 
in the Iberian Peninsula, when they largely get conquered by Islam, they still have each other and then obviously larger international support from other Christians. Yeah, when the LCMS people say, well, at least we still got each other, it, it makes me worried, actually. That's a little nerve-wracking to... <laughs> <laughs> I'm stuck in a foxhole with nothing... Oh, my. Hey, guys, I, I do love you, but uh, the point that Dr. Kuntz has made that probably most needs all of us to write some notes about is the one where he said that there's a a psycho-spiritual profile amongst probably alpha males in the Missouri Synod that has a lack of fellowship between us dealing with a need to live within character performance that has outbursts of depression and or rage, which we try to pretend aren't happening and uh, leads to our over-personalizing all opposition, which frankly weakens your resolve at the end of the day. And uh, I'll say guilty is charged and may Jesus Christ increase his kingdom in my life. If I might add to the many marvelous other things you said today, um, uh, I don't participate in these debates. I love it because uh, so many good reasons why not to chime in when who X whatever says this evil thing on Twitter. I mean, are you're on Twitter, right? Like it's 99.9% actually evil things being said, right? And I get that, that Mahler's might be extreme or connected sort of almost locally to you. Not really. Um, but at, at the same time, like it's gone. It's over. The only way anybody gets any feed of this in their algorithms is if you go in and respond to it. So you really want to fight this stuff. You really want it to shut up. Don't talk about it on Twitter. You see it, let it go. Let it die in the aether. And that is not only like just kind of using the algorithm to your advantage, but a good principle is don't feed the trolls. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I didn't make it up. I don't know where it came from, but whoever said it, they're right. Trolls live on adrenaline, right? They jump out from underneath the bridge. They go, roar, I'm a troll. You get scared. They go, do what I say, and you, you're in their game. If they jump out from behind the bridge and they go, roar, and you're like, I didn't see it. I walk right on by. I didn't even see him. He just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually they, they, they leave you alone. I mean, there are the few that might be federal agents that are going to turn you in, whatever. Like if you're living in that world, uh, pray Psalm 89 more often. The point really being engaging in any kind of online debate with somebody who you don't actually personally know over a disagreement, a disagreement at all, let alone like some public really far end what extremist stuff can we call it that like no really like just don't even get in that ring why are you there you want to get dirty i mean uh, i guess you can get pulled into a certain type of spiritual debate but to then kind of summarize this responsible of mine and Dr. Kuntz's with maybe some biblical language, it is certainly my experience that arguing about anything online does not redeem the time of these evil days. These evil days drenched with futility and slavery and despair. I want to redeem every moment I can, and that means building up rather than tearing down. And while I certainly believe there are certain wicked lies that ought be torn down, statues that ought not stand because they are heinous and evil, I can't do nearly as much about that as try to build up more the other six people that live in my home and the other neighbors who live around me who I really don't know from Adam practically and, and you know, all the way up to the congregation and, and on. Um, we got to build up or we're going to get blown over the ark 
is what we're all on together. It's not just your congregation. It is the Holy Christian Church in this place. Uh, And, well, again, it'd be nice to be able to join with others of like mind on matters where we can have a fellowship with them. You would think that the fellowship of the Lord's Supper and our attempt to practice a closed communion in some sort of conceptual biblical way would get that job done for us. Again, what do we need to repent of? For me, it's going to be what character performance leading to a lack of fellowship with my brother. Some, something like that is what I'm going to be meditating yeah. on and pondering more of after this marvelous episode. Um, do you want to say something? I got a closing line unless you want to say something else. I think that you can dismiss people once to find that they are insincere or simply motivated by power. That's obviously easier to observe in practice, in person than it is online. There's a there's a role for considering things that you learn from books or you read it on the internet or whatever. The issue always is is not even the scope of what you're doing. You know, you can aspire to do things for your whole nation if you if you want, for your whole state, but is what how are those things actually coming into practice? And who is building you up in that right practice, in that good life, and who is tearing you down, and what is tearing you down? And when you think about it that way, the scope may be whatever it is. It may be huge. It may be small. It may be one child you're raising. It may be a whole native state you're trying to help through political means, whatever it is. But it's there's always going to be severe limits and also severe dangers to handling everything, both theoretically, that is without practice, and also impersonally, that is without the interchange of truth and edification that that brothers give each other. Oh, these guys are talking about stuff. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. 
Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest.